I want to talk about houses today, and I want to talk about holidays today, and then I want to talk about houses again. So that's a basic outline. Houses, and then uh, holidays, or holy days, and houses. And uh, the reason I want to talk about houses, and then holy days, and then houses again, is because I want to consider two concepts together. I want to consider the idea of power, and I want to consider the idea of presence. Okay, so that's where we're headed, presence and power. Since the holiday of Easter, since Easter Sunday, I've been talking about a house. House, it turns out, is this multifaceted image in the Bible. It's, it's a word that shows up both in the Old and New Testaments. And in the Old Testament, which is written primarily in the, in the language Hebrew, this is the word house, beith. In the New Testament, it's the word oikos, um, New Testament's written in Greek primarily. So both words, beith in the Old Testament, oikos in Greek in the New Testament, are these multifaceted, really nuanced words. They can mean a variety of things, in other words. They can mean something as simple and straightforward as house, as in this is a dwelling place, this is where we live, to something a little bit more nuanced, like it can be translated household. And if we're talking about household, we're talking about people now. We're talking about your family now, right? It can also be translated home. And if you're talking about a home, you're talking about people, but you're also talking about a place of being. Home has all kinds of other nuances and all kinds of other um, meaning and value. Bayith can be a house of God, and we can just fully blow open Bayith, the word Bayith, to mean your whole life. All that you are and all that you have, your whole thing, that's your house. Like he's the prince of the house of Windsor. We're not talking about a specific dwelling. We are, but it's more than that. You follow me? It's like all that is there, all that, that is encompassed in that place. We're talking about the whole thing. And this wide range of meaning translates really well into English, which is what I've just done, and also into our culture. We understand this. In other words, if I were to say you know, to you, tell me about your house, tell me about your new house. You would probably start with the address. You'd tell me kind of where it is. You might name like how many bedrooms are in the house. You might tell me if it's a single-story house or, or a two-story house. And then to expand on the meaning of house a little bit, if I were to say to you something like at the, at the time of his death, his children were not getting along, his house was out of order. You would understand that I'm, I'm not just talking about there were dirty sinks, dirty dishes in the sink. Right, you would understand that I was talking about a bigger picture. I was talking about relational dynamics. I was talking about sort of the general feeling and the structure of the place. That more than just the house, but that all that he had was crumbling. In the Netflix political drama, the phrase is used, house of cards, and it's used to refer to the fragile, vulnerable nature of not just a physical dwelling place, but of a much larger set of relationships and political structures. House of cards. The NBA playoffs uses the phrase, not in our house, to talk about more than just the home court, but the power of the home court advantage this sort of dynamic that exists, yes, in the place, but beyond the place because it's more than just the place. And so over and over again, in the last several months, I started noticing this word house as I was reading the Bible. Uh, specifically, the idea of God's house became really interesting to me because it communicates more than just a building. It communicates the presence and the power of God. When we talk about God's house, 
from a scriptural standpoint, we're talking about God's presence and God's power. In our culture, when we talk about God's house, we're probably talking about, primarily, we're probably talking about a building that is dedicated for religious purposes. We're probably talking about a place where people gather like this for, for worship. But when we look at God's house, quote unquote, from a biblical perspective, we're talking about a whole lot more than just a building. We're talking about both the presence of God and the power of God. So we're talking about a physical thing, but we're also talking about a spiritual thing. Can we talk about God's house? We're talking about what you can see. We're also talking about what is unseen. We're talking about deep impact. We're talking about real influence. All right, so to summarize all that I've said over the last seven weeks about God's house, from a biblical perspective, you could probably summarize the whole thing by saying God's house is the place where the presence of God and the power of God is experienced. That's God's house. Now, the house of God, it progresses. It moves through different forms in Scripture. But in all cases, the house of God is the place of God's presence and the place of God's power. So as we approach this season of moving this church community from a school where we gathered for worship for 12 years into this old theater. This is our first real house of worship. I put together this series of teachings called Build, uh, Build a House, Building a House. And because we were preparing to move into this building, we wanted it to be so much more than just a building. Uh, and we wanted it to be about more than just being in a building. From the beginning, we've wanted this to be a true house of God, haven't we? We've wanted this to be a place where we encounter the real presence of God, a place where we come into contact with the real power of God in this place. That's been our hope. So let me hit some high points from the last few weeks. Um, these, are, these are five thoughts, quick thoughts about God's house as a place of power and a place of God's presence, all right? Some of you have heard this already. I'll go through these kind of quickly. First, what we want to say and have said is that the place of God, this was God's vision for God's house in the beginning, that it would be a place of power and a place of his presence. The very first time God instructs somebody to make him a house, it's Moses. He says, make me this tabernacle, this tent, kind of this mobile house. He says, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God. So the whole point, the vision behind the establishment of a house in the first place is that in the house, we'd be able to encounter God. We'd be able to come into contact, physical and spiritual contact with God. There'd be relationship here. There'd be worship happening here. God's presence and God's power would be known in this place. And then if you fast forward to the uh, middle of the, the New Testament, there's this crazy scene where Jesus enters into the temple of God, the courts around the temple of God, the new house of God, and he's very upset. He's throwing tables around. He's kicking over you know, money-changing desks and stuff, and he's very upset. What's the problem, Jesus? Well, they've, they've lost the vision for God's house. He says, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. So the, the reason he's so upset is because God was clear about the vision for his house the whole time. But it was being rejected. It was being sidelined. It was being put down in preference of other people's visions for God's house. Right? Second thought about God's house is, is, as a place of presence and a place of power is that this is what the resurrection reveals. This is what the resurrection reveals, that even death cannot defeat God's house. This is, this is very significant reality for us. Death cannot diminish God's power. It's very easy to think that it might. Death cannot take away God's presence. 
Uh, followers of God have wrestled with that reality for years. The primary proclamation of the New Testament is that Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the new and the true house of God. So Jesus is the place where the power and the presence of God is made known. Jesus is not God in a building, but Jesus is God in the flesh. So Paul writes, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell, there's a house word, all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So when the true temple, Jesus Christ, is killed, it's totally devastating. It's totally devastating because Jesus was the presence and the power of God and he's killed. It's devastating, much like when the temple that Solomon built 700 years earlier, which was the the place of God's presence and God's power, when that temple was destroyed, it was totally devastating. But then Jesus rises from the dead. Okay, then Jesus demonstrates that even death cannot hold down his power, even death cannot diminish his presence. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that changes everything moving forward, including the understanding of the, of the power at work in God's house. Specifically this, that it's stronger than death, that even death cannot destroy God's house. That's what the resurrection reveals. A third thing uh, about the power and the presence of God, it takes hold in a person's life through obedience. Okay, a third observation about the house of God. The power and presence of God takes hold in our lives through obedience. It's probably the most famous use of the word house on the lips of Jesus is when he contrasts the person who puts his teachings into practice against the person who hears his teachings but does not put them into practice. And Jesus says the one who hears his teachings and puts them into practice is like a man who builds his house on a rock. When adversity comes, when the storms of life come, and they always come, the house of the wise man or the life of the wise person, the one who puts the teachings of Jesus into practice, will stand, will not fall. So Jesus is taking, he's talking about this practical experience of the presence and the power of God and says that this house will be established not through some sort of basic, cultural, general awareness of the teachings of Jesus. That's not going to do it. It's through the regular obedience to and practice of the teachings of Jesus. Okay, so we can talk about this from like a theological level all day long, and I will enjoy it, and about three others of you will enjoy it. But we want to talk about like practical, we got to talk about obedience to this stuff. We've got to talk about the regular practice of putting the teachings of Jesus, and now we're talking about establishing a house, a life, um, a reality in our own where there's, where there's stability. And that leads to a fourth idea about the power and the presence of God, and that is that it can be alive in you. Okay, it can be, it can be, this, is what, this is what Daryl led us off with this morning. We talked about how God's presence and God's power can be alive in you. God has chosen to live or to fill with his presence and power four different houses throughout history. Four different houses. First, he inhabited a tent. Then he inhabited a temple. Then, in a total mind-blowing twist, he inhabits a person. And now Jesus Christ is the new and the true temple. And then, to blow your mind one more time, 
God says, I want to fill you. You are my temple. You are my house, right? Paul writes, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Now, is he serious or not? Is he being like super metaphorical or is there some reality there? That's house language. He prays, Paul prays that Christ may make his home in your hearts, okay, through faith. So this is one of my favorite ideas from this series is that you are God's house. It's you. You're God's house if you welcome him into your life. It's probably one of the most familiar ideas in evangelical Christianity that God can live within us. It's also one of the least realized New Testament realities that God can live within us. We know it here. We rarely experience it here. We can talk about it all day long. Oh, yeah, I can have a personal relationship with Jesus. But we show no power. We demonstrate no real presence of the divine in our life. Now, that's an exaggeration to make a point. But you see, it's super familiar, and yet it's also very seldomly realized. All right? But here's the idea. You can, be the power, you can be the house of God. In fact, it's been his plan from the very, very beginning. It's always been God's plan. You are his dream house. He's been hoping to dwell in you since the beginning. He's been planning for you to carry his power, carry his presence into the world since the start. This isn't plan B, C, or D. This is plan A. You've always been his dream house where he wants to live. And then finally, the significance or the impact of God's presence and power, it's greater than we realize. This is what I talked about last week. I talked about God's plans for our lives last week. I talked about how they're bigger than we think they are. They're bigger. They're better. His plans for our life are better than our plans for our life. And I, I'm aware of the fact that that might have sounded like some sort of spiritual positive talk. Oh, God's got bigger plans for your life than you do. But you need to understand, this is rooted in scripture. We looked at the story of King David, who has this big idea. He's going to build God a house. It's going to be his best accomplishment of his whole life. It's going to do something. He's going to do something great for God. He's like, God, I'm going to make you a house. And God comes back with the response, no, David, I'm going to make you a house. I'm going to make you a house. So David's thinking about building a place of worship for God, and God's thinking about revealing his power and his presence through David and his family for the next thousand years. It will culminate when his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-granddaughter literally carries, this is David's great-granddaughter, literally carries the presence and the power of God into the world in this little boy who she names Jesus. David wants to make God a house. God wants to make David into a house. So now we're talking about house on that big level, right? It's like this mind-blowing, all that you are, all that you have. Okay. Now, you know it can't stop there, right? You know there's got to be more, right? You with me? All right. Long recaps of series are often death, right? But we're going we're gonna to push forward. You know it can't stop. Today is about taking this reality of the presence and the power of God one step farther. We've talked about how a building can be a house of God. We've talked about how Christ is the house of God. We've talked about how you and I are the house of God. We've got to take it further, one step further. And in order to take that one step further this morning, I want to talk about holidays. Okay? I want to talk about holidays. So what's your favorite holiday? Patrick Bradley. What's your favorite holiday? Christmas. Popular choice. Yeah, good one. Somebody else? Corey, what's your favorite holiday? Easter. We start with the top two right there. Janet Ventura, good to see you back there. What's your favorite holiday? 
Christmas. Anybody got like a strange favorite holiday they want to offer, like maybe an off-brand, B-side kind of favorite holiday? Anyone? What's that? Halloween. There we go. Fun time to dress up. Pretend you're somebody you're not. Good. There's all kinds of um, there's all kinds of non-religious holidays in our culture, which is interesting. They're because we still call them holidays, and by non-religious, I don't mean they're bad. Uh, I just mean that they're established by the state. So this weekend is Memorial Day weekend. Tomorrow's Memorial Day. We honor something very important, very meaningful. It's an especially important uh, holiday for some people, um, and I think it's totally worthy of our pause and our reflection. It's interesting that it's still called a holiday because the word holiday comes from holy day. Uh, this was a, a, a holiday established by the state, not by the church. doesn't mean that it's bad. just means it's for a different purpose. Um, tomorrow's Memorial Day. Today is actually a holy day of the church. Did you know that? Today is actually a, a holiday of the church. Today is a significant Christian holiday or holy day, though few will acknowledge it. Few maybe are even aware of it. Uh, the fact is that today is a holy day, and next Sunday as well is a holy day. And by that I mean they mark significant events in the life of Jesus in the church, right? Much like Easter and much like Christmas, like you said. Any of you know what event in the life of Jesus is celebrated today? Anyone? The ascension. The ascension of Christ, the returning of Jesus into heaven. Very mysterious. It's one of the least understood uh, but most important events in the life of Jesus. And the reason that it is important has to do with the final iteration of God's house. The reason it's important has to do with the final iteration of God's house. The presence and the power of God in a place. Right? So let me read where this comes from, at least one of the accounts. It's in Luke and in Acts. We'll read from the, God, from the book of uh, Acts, written by Luke. So here it is, Acts chapter 1. It'll help explain what it is in case you're like, ascension? I've never even heard of that. Chapter 1 of Acts. In my, this is Luke writing. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. That's the, that's the ascension. Until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, that refers to the arrest of Jesus, the beatings, the mock trials, the death on the cross. Those are all Christ's sufferings. After that, he presented himself to them, that is the apostles, and he gave them many convincing tr- proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God, which is another way to talk about the power and the presence of God. On one occasion, Luke writes, when he was eating with them, all good things happen when you eat, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you've heard me speak about. We'll talk about that next week. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still thinking in geopolitical terms. (laughs) Even after the resurrection, 
They're still thinking, in other words, that Jesus has come, has risen from the dead in order to gather an actual political army, a military force around him to overthrow the oppressive Roman government. They're still in that mindset when they hear the word kingdom. That's pretty much the only thing that they can imagine. All right, verse 7. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority. Kind of sidesteps that a little bit. Doesn't say it's not going to happen, but doesn't say it's going to happen now. He doesn't even seem to know when it's going to happen. That's the Father's job to figure that out. But back to his point, back to Jesus' point, you will receive power. There's the power idea. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, should say you, and you will be my witnesses... There's the presence idea in Jerusalem, that's the downtown, Judea, that's the county, Samaria, that's the other side of the tracks where you're not supposed to go, and the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Uh, They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. This is very strange. It's very unlike almost anything in the Bible. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, men of Galilee, now they're addressing the apostles, they said, why do you stand here looking into this guy? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go to heaven, go up into heaven. All right, so the, um, the historic, in historic Christianity, there is a calendar Did you know this? There is a calendar. Kind of like you've heard of the Chinese year, there's a Christian year. And the calendar was established to communicate and to celebrate the high points of the life of Jesus to people who couldn't read. So even if you couldn't read the gospel, even if you didn't have a Bible in your house because doing so would be too dangerous, you could gather with people and through a series of celebrations and feasts and parties, you would learn about the life and the teachings of Jesus. So the Christian year starts with the anticipation of Christmas. What major event does Christmas celebrate? The birth of Jesus. Uh, The next major event is Good Friday. What does Good Friday commemorate? The death of Jesus. A couple days later is Easter. What does Easter celebrate? The resurrection of Jesus. 40 days later is the ascension. What does the ascension celebrate? Yeah, right, he goes to heaven. Like, what does that mean? We're not totally sure. Pentecost is the next week. What does Pentecost celebrate? Yeah, the filling of the Holy Spirit. The church is filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's really interesting to me. We know why Christmas is so important. It's most of our favorite holidays. We know uh, why Easter is so important. It's the resurrection of Jesus. When it comes to the ascension, we're kind of like, huh, I don't know. I guess It's the ending. He just sort of, it's so weird. He just kind of goes up into heaven, sort of a strange sort of thing to happen. I'm not sure why it matters. Friends, here's why the ascension matters. Here's why it matters. The ascension communicates that Jesus is more present and he's more powerful than we imagined. There's a whole lot of stuff happening here. It's in every major creed. There's more to say about it. But this morning, I just would summarize it by saying it matters because it communicates, just like resurrection communicates death doesn't have the final word. Just like Easter, uh, Christmas communicates God is coming into our life in the form of a little baby, ascension communicates that Jesus is more powerful than you thought, and he's more present than you thought, right? Because both Jesus' presence and Jesus' power are magnified, and that's the hard part to understand, are magnified, 
are amplified, are made more through us, through us, okay, through us. The ascension of Christ communicates that Jesus' presence and Jesus' power are more than we imagined. Quick comment about his power, quick comment about his presence, and then I'm going to talk about Christmas because it's the end of May. All right, so let's start with uh, the power. Typically, when we think of Jesus and power, when we think of Jesus and power, we imagine stories of his deliverance, of his healing that we read about in the Gospels, right? We think about him walking on water. We think about him raising people from the dead. We think about the things that he did during his time on earth. We think about what Jesus did, which is good and right and meaningful and incomplete because it's in the past. It's not that it's wrong. Of course we think about those things. It's the record we're given, but it is incomplete because it's in the past. It's a subtle distinction, friends, but when we think of Christ's power, we typically think in a way that seems to reveal that his best days are behind him. When he was really throwing punches was way back in the past, right? Because he did so many great things in the past. We typically think of when he was walking around, he was healing people, he's casting out demons, he's talking about the kingdom of God on earth. We think about Jesus's ministry. I ask you, tell me something about Jesus's ministry. You're going to come back to me with a story about Jesus's earthly ministry, because that's super important, and that's super important to understand. However, what we rarely think about is his current ministry, what he's doing now, where he is now and the work that he's doing. Friends, it radically shifts my perspective when I realize that Jesus is still ministering, when I realize that Jesus is still at work, when I realize that Jesus did not retire, okay? He's alive, he's engaged in my life, and he's engaged in your life. He ascended into heaven. He is actively ministering at the right hand of the Father to us and through us to the world. He is advocating for us. He is praying for us. He is affecting us, and he's affecting the world through us. Jesus says this to his followers towards the end of his ministry on earth. You can read about it in John 14. This is crazy. You will do greater things than I. You ever heard that? You will do greater things than I. Does anyone know what comes after that? He gives a reason. You will do greater things than I because I am going to the Father, because I'm ascending. The ascension is huge for you people. You need to understand, because of the ascension, you will do greater things than I. It must have been mind-blowing then. It's mind-blowing to me. Does that mean I'm more powerful than Jesus? Does that mean you, Jim, are more powerful than Jesus? No, but it means that Jesus' power is magnified through us. That Jesus' presence and his power can be kind of amplified through us. We can do greater things now than he did then, we can look at the Bible and read, it, read the pages of the Bible and go, man, it's, it's more stuff, better stuff, stronger stuff can happen, right? So the ascension shows us that Jesus doesn't just live on the pages of the Bible, but that he's still alive, he's still at work, not with the diminished sort of reduced or muted level of power, but in fact, the opposite is true, with an amplified, turn up the volume, it's stronger and louder and more powerful now. In fact, it's more powerful than we can imagine. The ascension matters to me because I'm not just remembering Jesus. I'll talk about that more in a second. We're not just remembering Jesus. The ascension matters because I can experience Jesus right here and right now, right? I mean, what is the alternative to him ascending into heaven? I guess he just dies. 
And then it's just, he was a leader and he rose and he, then he died. I mean, you got to have some sort of demonstration, as strange as it sounds, that people are watching somebody ascend into the sky. There's got to be some sort of a demonstration to us finite humans that he's, he's not dead. He's, he's going somewhere, but that doesn't mean he's not alive anymore. So the ascension amplifies Jesus' power. Secondly, the ascension amplifies Jesus' presence. He is more present if we can kind of get our heads around that. His ascension into heaven does not make him absent. His ascension radically increases his presence. We we talk about the ascension as that's when Jesus left, that's when Jesus went, which isn't very accurate. His disciples, understandably, are concerned about his absence. Because from our perspective, if you're not here, if you're not... If you're going somewhere else, that means you're not here, right? If you're going somewhere else, that means you must not be here. But the doctrine of the ascension provides for this mind-blowing quality of presence. So today, because of the ascension, we can say that Jesus is with us. We can say that. Jesus is with us. In fact, the last words that Matthew records Jesus saying are, Surely I am with you always. And then he leaves. See, It it requires us to think outside of just the limits of time and space for ourselves. Jesus goes from being in one place at one time to being in all places all the time. And that's all rooted in this ascension experience. As a French theologian named John Calvin, he says, the ascending Jesus did not cease to be with believers still on their earthly pilgrimage, but to rule heaven and earth with a more immediate power. It's like Jesus is powerfully present in this new form of power, this new form, unlimited by time and space. So even though his physical body may be absent from us, Jesus is actually more present with us, more present with us spiritually. God's presence is now moving from a single home If we go back to the idea of Jesus as the house of God, the presence and the power of God moves from a single home in a single place to millions of homes all over the world, right? So Jesus' presence in a single body ascends to heaven so that his presence in a million bodies may fill the earth. So we began by talking about the house of God and the holy day that we celebrate today is ultimately about the house of God becoming houses of God. That's what the ascension's about, about becoming houses of God, more places of God's presence and more places of God's power. Got it? (laughs) All right, quick story about Christmas. Um, I think the thing that I like the most about Christmas in our culture is that the holy day impacts the house so distinctly, right? You walk into somebody's house, it smells like Christmas. It looks like Christmas. Christmas generates this sort of energy that affects even the places we live. And the places we live demonstrate that we're celebrating the reality of this holy day. You can just walk down the street and you can know that it's Christmas time because of the way that the houses are all lit up and everything's changed because of Christmas. House and holy day collide the best in our culture at Christmas, don't they? They crash into each other. We get it. And that's appropriate because it's the beginning of the story. What would it look like for if the holy day we celebrate today 
crashed into our homes like that. If the Feast of the Ascension affected where we live, our houses, our homes, in a similar way, if the reality of God's magnified presence and power in us, in all of us, was visibly as distinct and noticeable as our houses are when they're lit up at Christmas time. Friends, we, the church, we are the church gathered, we are the church scattered throughout the world as we work, play, go to school, raise our families, go on vacation, travel around. We are carrying the power and the presence of God. This is why this matters. We are the houses of God. We are the place. Listen, we are the place this culture needs to encounter God. Okay? Very few people will come into a house of worship anymore. You are a minority in case you haven't noticed. But you, as a house of God, will encounter people all throughout the day, week, month, year, and frankly, you're the place they need to meet Jesus. You're the place they need to experience the presence, encounter the power of God. If they need healing, that's what you're carrying. If they need love, that's what you've got as the house of God, right? If they need good news rooted in something that doesn't go away, a lasting epic about God's love for people, understand that's not my, my job is to share that with those of you here. And then my job is to go out and share those with baseball coaches and all kinds of other people that I encounter. And that's your job too. Friends, we're the houses of God. We are the world's last hope in encountering the power and the presence of God who loves them. This is his design, right? This isn't like, oh, snap, it didn't work out, and now what? This is God's design. So let's receive that. Let's embrace that. Let's not eschew that responsibility and opportunity. Let's take it in and say, wow, I am so valued. I apparently have such significance that in the eyes of God, in the heart of God, his plan is to demonstrate power and to bring his actual presence into the world through me. We should light up our houses with the power and presence of God. Why? Because it's the Feast of Ascension. This is the day I got commissioned, right? Combined today and next week, and we got a full-blown commission to go be Jesus Christ in the world. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. We're grateful, Lord. I can't even imagine this sometimes. Uh, we seem ill-equipped. And um, man, um, it's surprising and unbelievable, except that you have declared it clearly. You want to work through us. You want to fill us up, compel us with your love so that we could be return to relationship with you. And then it's not over at all. In fact, it's just begun. You want to send us into the world, carrying your love and grace and power. Uh, for those that you love that haven't returned yet to you. So empower us, we pray. Write our thinking. Alert us to the significance of this opportunity and responsibility. Lord, we pray to know your power and to know your presence and to carry that effectively into the world. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.